I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined today by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, welcome back from the West, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. We uh, we went against your advice. We uh, we went to Joshua Tree with the with the little one. Did you? How yeah. was it? She was cool. It, yeah. was, it was good. Joshua no snakes. Tree's, no snakes. No snakes. Joshua Tree's a wonderful place. Uh, today, we've got something that's actually near and dear to my heart. We're talking about comic books. We have the author of a new book out from Crown, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Abraham Reisman joins us by Zoom from Providence, Rhode Island, also a place near and dear to my heart. Abraham, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Hey, you know, as as an Oak Parker, this is a, a pleasure to to be back in the oh, Chicagoland yeah, area, oh. even if only remotely. Welcome back, welcome back, sir. We appreciate it. Um, so, I don't want to belabor anything. Longtime listeners of this show know that I'm a big comic nerd. Uh, Abraham, real quickly for people who are not in the know, and I think that most people who have seen Marvel movies probably are in the know, but there are people out there who might not know who Stan Lee is. Can you give us a real quick summary of why Stan Lee is an important person? Sure. Um, so Stan Lee uh, is popularly identified as the driving force behind Marvel Comics, um, specifically the Marvel Comics uh, explosion of the 1960s when a bunch of the characters that now dominate the box office were first introduced, characters like the Avengers and the X-Men, Spider-Man, Black Panther, that sort of thing. Um, the complicating factor uh, is it's unclear exactly how much uh, he was actually responsible for creating these characters, but we'll get into that later. Uh, the reason he's famous and significant is he, uh, at the very least, popularized these characters and was an incredible salesman who was able to make Marvel this, um, it, you know, help make Marvel. He wasn't the only person behind it. Um, make Marvel this iconic brand that it is today. Um, and yeah, I, I, he he was a complicated individual, as we'll get into. But his impact is pretty undeniable. You you may recognize him from his many cameos, uh, sort of Hitchcock like cameos in various Marvel movies. He didn't have anything to do with the movies. Uh, by then, he was totally not involved um, by the time those movies got big. Um, but that said, uh, they have brought added fame for him in the past 20 odd years. Let's start off with, you know, the comic books themselves, because I think most modern people, you know, comic books were extremely popular in the 50s, 60s, pretty much until the 80s or 90s. And they really have fallen off as a consumer good. Um, as a collector, I can tell you, you know, comic books used to sell for as little as a dime or 25 cents and now have become quite expensive. They're around $4, $5, even up to $10 a copy. A pop, huh? yeah. yeah, graphic novels are even more. So what used to be a cheap thing that uh, parents would buy for their kids and were really widely enjoyed as mass media uh, no longer has that same place in the popular culture. But when Stan started out and when Marvel started out, and I think this is important to note, um, the entire industry was this hard scrabble business. It was largely run by New York Jewish businessmen who were in publishing, who were trying to pump out a lot of product as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And one of the ways they did it was seizing on the American appetite 
uh, which kind of came out of nowhere for godly costumed superheroes. Um, <laughs> and Stan, of course, was was one of the first people with that. But it, it's unfair to just only set him up as, you know, this is a guy that you should know from the Avengers. He actually had a very long career. He started when he was 19 years old, if I remember correctly, at uh, yeah, Martin Goodman's there. place. And he was writing Millie the Model. He was in uh, Serving in the War. He, he, he did a lot with actual raw comics creation before the time when most people, when they're thinking about comics, actually, you know, talk about comics. Can we mm -hmm. talk about a little bit about those kind of ur creative periods? Because I think that's really interesting. And you, in your book, you describe the kind of, again, this hard scrabble upbringing and the influences that were on Stan. And it's very interesting because I think you make a very compelling case that his background and the way he was brought up in this business is, in a sense, what set him up for uh, a long fall many years in the future. Sure. Well, it's 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 a lot of questions wrapped up into one, but I'll 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 take a stab and you can tell me if I'm answering it. Um, you know, uh Stan had a lot of factors like any human being that played into how his life went. Um, and one of them was the fact that he was employed at a very early age in comics. Um, and yet um, was employed in comics, not because he wanted to be, but rather because the opportunity just sort of presented itself. He was, uh, I, I should say earlier, uh, I, I forgot to give the, the basic job title, which was he was a writer and editor. Um, he was not drawing any of these comics. He, he did not have any, any visual artistic talent. He was, he was a writer and editor. Um, and he became a writer and editor largely just because when he was a teenager, uh, his cousin-in-law, the guy you mentioned, Martin Goodman, who was a, a, a somewhat disreputable publisher of pulp magazines and, and other such things and, and newly comic books as of then, um, you know, he, or rather newly superhero comics as of then, um, you know, he was, like I said, Stan's cousin-in-law. This was a family gig. This was, you know, his, his, <laughs> his mom wanted to get him a gig so he would, you know, have something to do and a, a stream of income. And so he ended up as a gopher just doing random errands at Martin Goodman's company uh, around 1939, 1940. And then through a series of uh, events that may have had to do with him ratting somebody out, may not have, whatever, uh, the corporate structure changed and they needed a new editor-in-chief. Um, so at a very young age, uh, before he's even 20, he's the editor-in-chief of this, this comic book line. Um, and he, as you say, had this long career and a lot of it was driven by his desire to get out of comic books. Um, even when he was making comic books that were changing the world, um, in the 1960s, uh, many decades later, because he started, I should say, in, like I said, 1939, 1940, um, you know, even decades later when the comics were very popular, he was trying to do something else because this was not his intended career. He did not grow up loving comic books, mainly because comic books didn't exist until 1933 or so. Um, but certainly once he was in there, he always had his eyes set on bigger things and that motivated him to keep going, but also yeah, enabled a lot of missteps. I wanted to just mention this, something that really surprised me was the mention of Patricia Highsmith early in the book. I was, <laughs> I was surprised to see that uh, one of his friends, they was trying to set them up as roommates. Is that? Uh, as no, a as a date. As a date, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, Patricia, uh, Patricia Highsmith, the great, the great Patricia Highsmith was uh, doing a little bit of writing of comics at Martin Goodman's company. 
Um, and uh, if I recall correctly, Vince Fago, who was uh, also at the company and subbed in for Stan as the editor in chief um, while Stan was serving in the war, uh, I believe it was Vince who introduced the two of them and it didn't go well. You know, it wasn't a disaster by by Vince's uh, you know description, but it didn't go anywhere because um, Stan just wanted to talk about himself, and Patricia wasn't interested in Stan Lee as a subject. I like that um, final sentence, and when you're t- it's like just Stan was into himself or something. Stan, I can't remember exactly yeah. how Vince <laughs> phrased it, but yeah, I was like Stan just wanted to talk about Stan. And that was not Patricia's uh, bag. I yeah. actually have it right here. It was Stan Lee was only interested in Stan Lee. <laughs> right. So. That was that was Vince Vince Vago describing Stan. And you know, it's interesting. We mentioned Patricia Highsmith. A, a number of other actual well-known writers did work in comics. I mean, Dashiell Hammett is the is the good example. Mm-hmm. He went from doing comic books to writing Mike Hammer. No, that are those. Can you get those? Yes, you can. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Mike Danger series is is still available. He did those in the '40s and '50s. And oh, wow. you know, of course, other people. Uh, subbed in in comics ray bradbury famously wrote a lot of comics or they would be adapted by by marvel uh in the later years so there was actually a literary ferment so stan as you mentioned did not want to do that he had designs of being a serious writer right yeah yeah he wanted to i mean the story he always told is he adopted the name stan lee he'd been born stanley martin lieber to romanian jewish uh refugees in new york um you know, the reason he, he took the name, he always said, was because he wanted to save his real name for writing the great American novel. Um, and, you know, whether that specifically was the origin of him adopting that moniker back in the turn of the 40s, you know, who knows. But it certainly fits with the larger outline of how he approached his career. He, you know, stopped trying to use anything other than the name Stan Lee. Um, but under that name, he tried to branch out into any number of different projects and mediums and genres, uh, never with anything resembling the success that he had with superhero comics in the 1960s. But I mean, it also seemed like a practical decision, a survival mechanism. You make it clear in the book that being a, a, a comics writer or, or illustrator, inker, whatever, working in the comics industry wasn't exactly a reputable no, no. Profession. I mean, he he would lie about it. At, sure, I mean, even especially when he in the fifties. Big, yeah. Right, especially in the fifties when there was this huge moral panic about comic books. Um, oh yeah. You know there were comic book burnings and Senate, you know, hearings about comic books, and um, yeah, the, you know, there's a famous book called Seduction of the Innocent, which is I just think one of the best titles for a book <laughs> in a moral panic. That you, you could have that be the title of any book in any moral panic. And he, Frederick Wortham, who wrote it, just nailed it. But um, you know, in the '50s especially, he wanted to downplay the degree to which he was involved in writing comics. Um, but then even later, it, it just was not the medium that he found most compelling. I mean, he he would say in private conversation, um, you know, I never read comic books while I was making them. Like if I wasn't involved in making them, I didn't read them. You know, that was, it would just, and you know, there's this conversation that he recorded that he had with the director, Alain Rene of Hiroshima Mon Amour. Um, you know, they'd become friends, which is a whole other story, but he, in the sixties taped a conversation that he had over, you know, one evening with Alain and, uh, and, uh, Stan's wife, Joan in which he just says, I don't understand people who read comic books. Like I wouldn't read them if I had the chance to not read them. Um, So this was not a medium that he liked. Um, And, 
you know, he often felt embarrassed about it, even after the moral panic. It just was not, you know, you look at listings and society pages for Long Island where he lived in the 1960s, you know, after Marvel has started to really break big um, or at least become a, a, a powerful force. And in those society page listings for parties that he and Joan would throw in Long Island, they, they just, it never mentions that he writes comic books. It's always like he's in publishing or he's a writer. You know, it, it very specifically does not mention it. One time you have one that even mentions in 1963, two years into the Marvel Revolution, you have uh, him getting described uh, as the author of a book of hilarious captions because, oh, yeah. you know, he had this this obsession throughout his career with this idea that his ship was really going to come in by making sort of proto memes, basically, like taking photos of either news items you know, news photographs uh, or or great works of art um, and then coming up with goofy captions or dialogue bubbles to put on they them. They weren't that funny. Um, <laughs> no, no, they were not. They were not that <laughs> they funny. No, it's very interesting. I mean, it really is one of the few constants in his career because you have him doing that, um, you know, going back to the early stages of career and then his career. And then like as late as 2008, he put out one for the 2008 election where he took a bunch of new, you know, there were a bunch of news photographs of candidates in that particular election. And he came up with goofy captions for them. And over and over again, he kept suggesting that. But anyway, I'm I bringing that up just as, as a point um, to say that he, that was something that he thought as having more value than comic books. That's how, how lowly he thought of comic books and at least at times. It's amazing. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I want to have our listeners hear your actually your actual words, Abraham. We're speaking with Abraham Reisman. He's got a new book out called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. Today, music is provided by Micaiah McRaven. We'll be right back with more conversation from Abraham and his book right after this short break. None of what happened in Stan's life past the age of 16 would have been possible without the efforts of the controversial and undersun founder of the company that became Marvel Comics. He was another ambitious second-generation American Jew who wasn't afraid to cut corners and do a little backstabbing here and there in order to get ahead. If you were to invent him as a fictional character, you might be accused of mild anti-Semitism. In fact, he was just one of the first in a long succession of domineering and ambitious, and as it happened, Jewish, men who loomed large in Stan's life until its end. Moses Goodman was born to Lithuanian Jewish immigrants Isaac Goodman and Anna Gleichenhaus on January 18, 1908 in Brooklyn, though the child would eventually come to be known as Martin. Theirs was a large family, even by the standards of the time, 13 children in 22 years. Martin was the eighth child, but improbably the first male, and before he could reach the sixth grade, he dropped out of school to supplement the peddler's wages of his father with scattered jobs. Members of the Goodman family speak of how young Martin developed a precocious interest in publishing as a kid, cutting out articles from magazines and rearranging them with paste into his own mock compilations. He was an iconic American type, not just in his entrepreneurial desires, but in his lust to understand the inner workings of the country his parents had adopted. People who knew him would often tell, perhaps inaccurately, of the days of wanderlust Goodman spent hitching rides on trains across the United States in the middle of the 1920s. Before his publishing days, there were many a tramp trips, freight cars, cooking beans over a fire, one of his lawyers, Jerry Pearls, would later say. I don't think you could mention a town to him that he didn't know about. He is knowledgeable about this country. It helped him a great deal later on in magazine circulation. 
The circumstances under which Goodman came to that trade are murky. He most likely worked for the so-called father of magazine science fiction, publisher Hugo Gernsback, birth name Hugo Gernsbacher, another Jewish immigrant, albeit one from Luxembourg. But evidence of such employment is limited to hearsay. Somehow or other, Goodman came into contact with Gernsback's one-time circulation manager, a Jewish law school graduate named Louis Siebelkite. As of late 1929, Silberkleit was working as a circulation manager for Eastern Distributing Corporation, a national distributor of dozens of magazines, and he took Goodman on to work in the circulation department. There, Goodman got a first-hand view of the world of the so-called pulps, so named for the cheap paper, often made from low-grade wood pulp, on which they were printed. Pulp magazines were deliciously trashy items, chock full of punchy text about everything high culture wouldn't touch, from lurid tales of sex and death to the still-forming genre of sci-fi. The pulps were a sensation with use around the country, particularly a certain kind of obsessive young man, the likes of which would go on to become Stan's bread and butter. Gernsbach and his ilk were cultivating the first generation of what would one day be referred to as geeks. As publishing historians Michael J. Velasso and Blake Bell put it, for Goodman, success meant jumping and pumping, jumping on a successful trend and pumping multiple similar titles with the least possible investment through the pipeline as fast as possible in order to rake in as much profit as possible. They put out that Goodman set up more than 80 quasi-fictitious companies over the years, shady publishing entities that could buy and sell their intellectual property from one another when one or a few went bankrupt or got into legal trouble. As Velasso and Bell say, Goodman put more effort into building his corporate web of shell publishers than he did into building a strong brand, which, right there, reveals the priorities of the quick-buck, low-brow publishing mindset of the 1930s. Oddly enough, the slender, prematurely white-haired, generally quiet Goodman would be the first to cop to this not-so-generous assessment. If you get a title that catches on, then add a few more, you're in for a nice profit, he once told the Literary Digest. Fans are not interested in quality, he said on another occasion. By way of justification of this mindset, we have yet another cutthroat line from Goodman. This field is full of pirates. And that was a passage from the new nonfiction book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. It is the biography of the Marvel Comics creator, and we were speaking with the writer Abraham Reisman. Before the break, uh, and before that little segment, we were talking about Stan's disdain for the material he created. And it is worth noting, because we have used the words revolution, and, and we've talked about how Marvel did change the game. In 1961-62, when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who was the pre, uh, one of the premier artists at Marvel, started mm. releasing more superhero books, and I think the names I'm about to recite will be familiar to people, um, it, it did form a cultural sea change. Uh, they became extremely popular on college campuses. They started to get wider uh, acceptance in, in the popular press as well, uh, and they started selling. Some of the characters mm -hmm. that were created, uh, that Stan and Jack created, were the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Thor, uh, Incredible Spider-Man, uh, the Avengers. Uh, Captain America was a legacy character that Jack Kirby and Joe Simon had created back in the 40s that they resuscitated. Submariner was also a legacy character with uh, Bill Everett. All these characters started coming back and were kind of rebooted for the 60s. And one of the things that Stan hit on uh, which I think was very ingenious and, and he deserves credit for, was this kind of quasi-ornate um, style of writing 
For example, with Thor, everything was kind of this quasi-Norse mythology. Uh, Thor always spoke in thys and thous, and it was always, you know, the weeping tree of Regaskill or, or whatever. Uh, Spider-Man was an actual uh, teenage kid who'd been bitten by a spider, and frankly, he was kind of creepy in the early issues that were done with Steve Ditko. <laughs> he was not really a nice guy. Please, nope. please elaborate, because I have no idea. So Spider-Man... When, How was Spider-Man creepy? I'd he, like to know. He, he was extremely oh. creepy. He was a very Well, he was an incel. Person. Like, he was an incel before they were incels. Like, his oh, whole thing in the yeah. in the first few dozen issues of Spider-Man, which are fascinating. These, these are ones that he put together with Steve Ditko, another writer-artist um, who has gone undersung. Um, Peter is just this jerk. Like, he feels very put upon by the world. And to a certain extent, he is. He's a dweeb who people make fun of. And, you know, he's not. he doesn't have much money, all that. But the way he takes it out on people is very vicious. Like, when in the scenes that are him out of costume, of which there were many, and that was something that was very, uh, you know, in and of itself, very interesting and unusual for a superhero comic. While it's just him being a high schooler, he, he like anytime he gets the opportunity to have his company, you know, get somebody come up and so for somebody he does. And then is like really mean about it. it you know, he's just not a pleasant guy to deal with, but when he's in costume, he's very funny. Like it's, it's a, the original Spider-Man comics are so much weirder than people give them credit for and, and really worth reading because they're, both laying the groundwork for what we now think of as Spider-Man, but also um, finding aspects of the character that other subsequent generations have been reluctant to explore. Because why would you want Spider-Man to be, I mean, I guess there have been a few times when Spider-Man sort of become a jerk because of cosmic or, you know, body switching reasons. But for the most part, he's this fun guy that we love and he's very affable. And it's very interesting to read these early stories and see how different it was. But anyway, that's, that's a digression, but yes. Abraham, are you a, were you a fan going into this or was this just something that you Well, heard? I mean, I'm a reader. I, I grew up reading comic books, um, you know, back in the 90s when I was coming up and, uh, you know, had never stopped being a reader of comic books. But my my in in uh, in what am I intake? That's what I'm looking for. Uh, ingestion of comics uh, dropped off. Uh, for a number of years when I was uh, in college and then the first few years out of college. And then after that, I got back into them and started writing about them. Um, I was a staffer at New York Magazine at the time, and they were kind enough to let me write about it on an, about the comics industry on a lot of occasions. Um, and that subsequently led to a profile of Stan that I wrote when he was still alive back in 2016, uh, which then led to the book, um, which you know, came about, um, right after he passed away in 2018. Um, so, you know, and when it came to Stan himself, I never really had that deep of an emotional relationship, a parasocial relationship with Stan. A lot of people do. And I respect that. I mean, you know, it, that's something that's true for a lot of people. Uh, but for me, you know, I became aware of Stan watching the Marvel Action Hour, which was this sort of odds and sods cartoon show that came up in the in the early 90s that, that Marvel was responsible for. Um, and he would do these little live action intros. And I believe that's when I first became aware that he existed. And then as my readership, uh, as my reading continued, uh, you know, he remains this big presence in Marvel lore. So I became even more familiar with him and yada, yada, yada. So I wouldn't say, I don't know. I wouldn't characterize myself as a fan. I just feel that's a very loaded term, but I certainly sure. have been 
you know, I came into this with a lot of background and experience. This was not me just parachuting into a topic. Purveyor. How's that? Purveyor of comics. Something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. We, we've got to go to a break in a little bit. But before we do, I just want to shoehorn one question in because the book is called The Rise and the Fall of Stanley. So in the second mm -hmm. half of our program, I do want to talk about that. But I, I do want to dig in a little bit because, again, one of the seminal creations was, and you make a good point of this in your book, was the Fantastic Four. Uh, and that was a super team of four people who obtained their powers frankly, in a horrible way. They're in a rocket. They get blasted <laughs> by cosmic rays, and they come out as as mutants. One of them, in fact, is a rock-bound creature uh, known as the Thing. And uh, he, in the original comics, was played very monstrously. Now, this was created with the... Um, artist Jack Kirby, who had been a long-standing artist in comics. He had worked for everyone. And writer. And writer. Yes, he was a writer, writer artist. And a creator. He had worked with Jack's, uh, with Joe Simon. Uh, they had mm -hmm. a shop together for many years. And he really had been in the business. He, he probably was one of the old heads that was around at that time. He was. He was also one of the most popular artists. He had a very dynamic drawing style that uh, most modern comic book artists still look to today. Uh, his figures um, are remarkable because with very few lines, they do seem to kind of kinetically leap off the page. They're always mm -hmm. in motion and they're always in action. Now, Kirby had other faults. We can talk about that after the break. But I wondered if you could just talk real briefly about this moment in time where Stanley and Jack Kirby really were doing something that was not present in other comics. DC's Superman was a very stiff, kind of strange character drawn by Wayne Boring, the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, John Forte was making everybody look like cardboard cutouts. Everything else was very young and for kids. And Marvel had this sense, dare I say it, of kind of danger. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, there, there was, uh, I mean, look, there were a lot of elements in the Marvel comics of the 1960s that were unprecedented or at least extremely unusual for superhero comics. Um, and yeah, Jack and Stan were, were responsible for that. Uh, you know, everything from, you know, having this infusion of, of what felt like, at least for the time, more naturalistic dialogue. It, it reads very stilted now, but at the time it was this huge leap forward for the way dialogue sounded in, in superhero comics. Uh, there was continuity. Um, you know, that adds to the sense of danger that you're talking about, where it was like, um, you know, every issue built on on the previous issue. It was, it was ongoing stories. Uh, and that was very unusual at the time. And that could add to this sense of, of high drama. It was not just every, every month, every week, whatever, um, the same stuff happened. You know, there's just a self-contained story that has a beginning, middle and end. And you know that with the next issue, that the reset button is going to be hit and everything's going to be back where it was. There was a sense that actions had consequences, that stories had consequences. Um, and on top of that, there was the interconnected nature of the continuity, which was mostly Stan's doing. Jack actually didn't like doing this, but this is what you see now in the movies where you have all these individual stories that are being told about individual characters or individual teams. And then they would come together or events in one comic would influence events in another or a character from one would appear in a, in a comic from another and the story would actually be remembered and, you know, within the context of the universe. And anyway, there, there were a lot of elements they threw in there that felt, uh, you know, exciting, edgy, whatever words you want to use. We're speaking with Abraham Reisman. His new book is True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Uh, we're going to take a moment to thank the folks that make this station possible. Then we're going to come back with another selection from Abraham's book, and we're going to talk to him more about the life and the career of Stan Lee. You're listening to I-94.
And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Fantastic Four number one crystallized an art form that has had an impact on our culture rivaling jazz, rock and roll, and hip-hop, wrote the author Walter Mosley in 2005. It not only spoke to the young people of my day and later, but it also helped to form them, to release pressures and tensions that the older generations had no idea existed. This is high praise, and a modern reader may be forgiven for not agreeing upon reading the issue for the first time. Like so many pieces of art that define genres and set trends, the Fantastic Four number one seems archaic and cliched now to the untrained eye. But for an uncountable number of readers who picked up the comic after it hit stands on August 8, 1961, it was a mind-blower. However, a question haunts the comic, asked only by the curious few who read between the lines. Who came up with it, and, in doing so, began the Marvel Revolution? Traditionally, that honor has been reserved for Stan Lee, but outside Stan's own oft-repeated words, there is currently no known evidence that he created the premise, plot, or characters that appeared in the Fantastic Four number one. No presentation boards, no contemporary legal documents, no correspondence, no diary entries, nothing. There is, of course, a chance that something exists and is simply not publicly available at present, but given all the painstaking legal, historical, and journalistic searching to determine the issue's creative origins, that seems highly unlikely. The closest thing to evidence that a pro-Stan argument can offer up is a curious document with a questionable backstory. It's a summary of that particular and consequential comic book written on a typewriter with a heading that reads, complete with a misspelling of synopsis, Synopsis, The Fantastic Four July 61 Schedule. Stan's protege, Roy Thomas, claimed that Stan showed him this document in the late 1960s, years after it was supposedly written. It has since been reprinted by Thomas on multiple occasions as his way of identifying Stan as the prime mover. But the key question is whether the synopsis was composed before or after a discussion of the ideas between Stan and Kirby. If it was written before, that would make Stan the creator of the Fantastic Four. If it was written after, Jack may have been the creator. It's near impossible to know for certain, but there is significant reason to suspect that the synopsis was written after Stan and Kirby spoke. Even Stan suggested this was the sequence of events in a 1974 essay about the comic. After kicking it around with Martin, Goodman, and Jack for a while, I decided to call our quaint quartet the Fantastic Four. I wrote a detailed first synopsis for Jack to follow, and the rest is history. In 1997, Thomas told an interviewer that he saw Stan's plot for Fantastic Four number one, but even Stan would never claim for sure that he and Jack hadn't talked the idea over before he wrote this. Stan would go on to change his story by telling Thomas in personal correspondence about the synopsis from the late 1990s. Incidentally, I didn't discuss it with Jack first. I wrote it first after telling Jack it was for him because I knew he was the best guy to draw it. There's a rumor that the entire document was created after the comic hit stance. In 2009, Kirby's assistant, Steve Sherman, recalled, I asked Jack about that synopsis. He told me it was written way after FF number one was published. I believe him. And what of Kirby's direct words on the matter? In 1989, an interviewer said to Kirby, Stan says he conceptualized virtually everything in the Fantastic Four, that he came up with all the characters, and then he said that he wrote a detailed synopsis for Jack to follow. Kirby's response was brief and to the point. I've never seen it, and of course I would say that that's an outright lie. Welcome to the eternal debate over whether it was Stan or Kirby who created the superheroes that emerged in the heady days of the Marvel explosion. For historians of popular culture, it is a debate that is equal parts aggravating and essential. Billions of dollars have hinged on it. Disney's livelihood depends on Stan's interpretation of it. A legal case centered on it came one step away from the Supreme Court and was settled for an unspeakable sum. 
And for the purposes of our present narrative, there is simply nothing more important, for one's entire conception of Stan rests on whether or not you think he truly was the originator of this world-changing pantheon. There is almost certainly no definitive item in existence that will settle the matter. The comics industry was simply too haphazard in the axial years of the early 1960s for anyone to have made and saved firm documentation about who did what. Back then, the order of the day was frantically throwing stuff at the wall and moving on to the next thing, which continued to be the case even as Stan started finding renown. It was a period of fevered experimentation and promotion, all of it leading to enormous consequences, none of it being closely observed for posterity. Welcome back. You are listening to I-94 right here on WLPN. I'm Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello. And today we're speaking with Abraham Reisman. He is the author of True Believer, a biography of the rise and fall of Stan Lee. He of Marvel Comics. It's out now from Crown. And we're actually right out of the break. You heard some words from his book. And before the break, we were talking about the creation of what everybody knows today as the Marvel Universe. Uh, but Abraham, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about something that is dog Stanley. And I think we talked about the rise a little bit before the break. Now it's time to talk about the fall. One of the things that is hmm. dog Stan is the idea of creator credit. Now, as we talked about very early in the show, we noted that people working in comics didn't get paid very well. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that has made comics so attractive in the modern era is that they've been mined for these multi-billion dollar movies. Now, when Stan and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and other people were creating these stories, they never thought about that. They never thought that these characters would someday be called uh, intellectual property or would someday be licensed or go on to you know make billions of dollars. They were just trying to put food on their table. But right. as we've moved into the modern era, major corporations such as Disney in the case of Marvel, Warner Brothers in the case of DC, uh, these properties are now worth a great deal of money. And it has led to some big legal wrangling and the idea of who gets credit for what. Stan Lee was very uh, insistent that he had created the Marvel Universe. And in fact, legally, Marvel uh, wanted that to be the case uh, for reasons that I think you can detail a little more. Mm -hmm. First of all, is that even true? And aside from the very esoteric nerd of question of, you know, who created the Hulk? I don't think anybody really cares here in the, the great world. But why is this why is this an important topic? Well, it's about labor rights. I mean, it's about you know, creators being properly credited for and compensated for the the work that they do. Um, you know, uh, as you say, Marvel and then Disney, which bought Marvel in 2009, have had an interest in having Stan's version of the story be the, the, the accepted one. Um, because in Stan's version, he was the one who came up with the initial spark for all of these characters, excuse me, all these characters. Um, and Jack just, uh, you know, came up with the the illustrations, you know, uh, came up with the visual concept behind the characters. Uh, and then when they were making the comics, you know, the, the version of events that came to be, as a side note, these comics were not being made by script, um, despite what you may assume or based on the credits that were on there, they were being created through this esoteric kind of weird process called, or idiosyncratic, I guess I should say, process called the Marvel method, uh, where Jack and whoever else was doing the art for a given comic was actually doing the first pass of the writing, um, just doing it in visual form. Um, so, you know, they were co-writers. You could even say that the writer artists were the main writers. Um, but the reason that these, the, the credit for who created the characters matters is, oh, sorry, I, 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 
uh, forgot what I was saying before. Uh, the reason that Disney and Marvel want Stan's version to be accepted is Stan was an employee. Stan was a company man. Jack was a freelancer and freelance work for hire laws had not really been hammered out in the United States in a clear cut way as of the 1960s. So these characters are getting invented um, and if they're getting invented by somebody who's coming from the inside of the company, it's a little bit firmer of a claim. Um, and also Stan liked to play ball. I mean, Stan, with the exception of a, a lawsuit between 02 and 05 uh, with Marvel, throughout the entire rest of his career, he really just did whatever Marvel needed him to do. So he was he was a good soldier and that's that's easier for them to manage. Whereas Kirby had a lot of resentment towards Marvel, was not afraid to talk about it. He died in 1994, but uh, prior to that, he had a number of years where he said, you know, really just excoriated Marvel in interviews saying that they had, um, you know, not properly credited him and so on and so forth. And all of this matters, like I said at the beginning, because this is it's it's the principle of how these how creative labor works it, it should be that there's a more robust set of uh remunerations and credits that are given to you when you create a character for marvel um as it is it's all work for hire so and there's there's no real way around that so what that means is you create something uh out of your little head um, that thing goes on to make billions of dollars and you don't get a single dime from it. You're not required to get a single dime from that, I should say. Um, you know, when, when it gets made into a movie, sorry, that's what I meant. Uh, if it gets turned into a movie or the lunchbox, whatever, you're not getting paid for that character. Um, even though you created it, it's just, you happen to create it for the Marvel universe. So therefore Marvel owns it. Um, and I don't know why, maybe this makes me a delusional lefty, but I just feel like that's that's not the way business should be done. Um, I don't think there's any moral justification for it. There are justifications of expediency um, or of, you know, well, technically it's legal, but there's nothing, there's, there's no way you can morally justify the fact that like, you know, you have some character that can make a billion dollars and the person who created it can barely see a dime from that. Uh, I want I want to pause here for a second and go back to the beginning. But there there are a lot of people and events that we should talk about. Among them, the uh, multiply convicted felon Peter Paul and Stan's family, his younger brother, his daughter. <laughs> lots of stories. But I was I I found the be very beginning of the book the most compelling to me, and it starts mm. off in Romania, and I, it was really interesting to me. Maybe because uh, it's where and when my family came over. Oh um, no, kidding! Really, yeah, it's the was, same same period, and, and also Romania. No way. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool, um, and it kind of led me down a, my own rabbit hole. But I just wanted to ask uh, why you started there and what the re research was like for it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you say, I, I start the book both in the very introduction and then uh, in the first chapter. Um, you know, talk. I, I situate those 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 sections in in Eastern Romania, where uh, Stan's parents were were born and raised, um, and part of that was just you know I'm Jewish and I do a lot of Jewish historical uh, research in general for articles and also just for my own edification. And so it was something that was just interesting to me. But also I don't know. I, I felt like 
this is a banal thing to say, but you can't understand someone unless you understand the circumstances out of which they emerged. And nobody had bothered to investigate the situation into which Stan was born in any kind of detail, much less any kind of research into the situation of his parents. Well, what his, it did for me, who, who you know is not a big comic book person and doesn't know a whole lot of Stanley other than I think I've seen him in some Kevin Smith films, maybe, <laughs> um, was it did, it did what Jamie was talking about. You know, why, why should the wider world care? You know, for the average person who doesn't care who created the Incredible Hulk or, you know, the distinguishing between Captain America's shield and the shield's shield, (laughs) why does this stuff matter? That's what the intro did for me. It it, uh, zoomed out and gave gave a a wider scope of of everything going on. I Thank like you. That you dropped the shield that. in there too. That's good. That's what. Yeah, I, that was that's good. That's what JC did for me. <laughs> well, let's let's yeah, talk about that. I mean, we're you know, look, we I could talk about this all day. I'm a big comic nerd, but I think we, we are running short on time. It would be great to talk a little bit about JC, who I think all of us agreed is a uh, a piece of work. Yeah. Uh, can we can we talk about Stan's family family dynamics? Sure. And, and a yeah. Bit about this, and because this is really the the root or the seed. I think you make a very compelling case of his later life problems. Yeah, so Stan had a difficult relationship with his family. Um, He really wanted nothing to do with his family of birth. Um, You know, he barely ever talked about his parents. Um, You know, his brother, Larry Lieber, his younger brother by nine years, was uh, a constant employee or at least, you know, person working with him. Um, But they were never close. And even when they were working together, uh, Stan could be extremely distant. Um, you know, Larry told me, I talked to Larry for something like five and a half hours, all told, uh, he was very generous with his time and recollections. And, you know, he said that Stan never once in their entire life together, um, said, I love you to him. Like just never, never expressed love at all. Um, and then you have, uh, Stan's family of, of choice, which was his wife, uh, Joan, an Episcopalian English woman uh, from Newcastle, and his daughter, uh, Joan and his daughter, uh, JC, Joan Celia. Um, And, you know, in a brief capsule, it's hard to summarize that set of relationships, but suffice it to say, Stan was intensely devoted to his wife and his daughter, but often at his own expense, quite literally. Both of them were... Yeah, but his financial expense. There was a line in there where Stan's like, $500,000 a year for two years. How am I going to live off that? How am I going to live on that? Yeah, no, well, that that was the thing. I mean, he there was a period when it was looking like he was going to be only making something like $500,000 a year for two years. And that was, a, according to his then best friend and later business partner, Peter Paul, that was a real problem for him because his wife and daughter spent so much that he needed more in the way of liquid cash. Man. And, um, you know, as you said, that that was something that kind of spurred him to make a lot of uh, weird business decisions. I mean, he 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 died just a few weeks shy of 96 and was working almost up until the day he died, which was not good. You know, I mean, for his health, uh, for his sanity, I mean, he was still in his 90s, you know, flying across the world to go appear at conventions. So he could pick up all the cash that came from doing signings and photos and just the appearance fee. Um, and, you know, when it came to that, 
you know, Larry told me a story about one of the rare times when he had kind of a, a heart to heart with his brother for a few minutes. Um, you know, Stan was saying, I can't stand doing all of these appearances anymore. They're driving me nuts. They're exhausting me. They're grinding me down. And Larry said, so why do you do them? And Stan said, well, it's because of my wife and daughter. I need to, I need to pay for them. And I, I have to keep doing this stuff. And once, you know, I, I almost debated downplaying or not even really getting too much into the family dynamics when I was first mapping out the book. But then I was like, I, you can't understand the dis- decisions he made if you don't understand his oh, personal yeah. finances. Yeah, thanks for keeping that in there. Yeah, yeah, because the finances are a mess. I mean, real briefly, I mean, he had several companies that would uh, go bankrupt or be sued or seem to be doing very suspicious money things. And that, I think, in your book, added to this kind of image of him as kind of sleazy in a way uh, when you put it up against the fact that he was so steadfast in towing the Marvel company line when artists began saying in the 70s and 80s, hey, we're not being compensated fairly. Um, was that, I don't want to say if that was an intention, but was that where kind of the research led you? Because that, that certainly was the impression I got. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know I would use a word like sleazy, but there were certainly... Negligent, um, maybe. You yeah. know. What'd you say? Negligent, you know? He, he... Yeah, to some extent. I mean, the, he... He was somebody who, um, I'm trying to think of how to put this without editorializing too much because I, I tried not to do that with the book, but um, he was someone who came out of the depression. Maybe that's the best way to put it. He was somebody who came out of uh, a period of poverty for himself, for his family, for America, whatever. And, you know, in his memoir, uh, his first of, of his first memoir, the second one was sort of just a comic book adaptation of the the first one. But um, in his memoir, he opens up chapter one, you know, he does the introduction with the throat clearing. And then chapter one begins with him saying, I always felt sorry for my father because my father didn't get enough work and he was poor and he felt bad about himself and he couldn't provide for his family. So I vowed that I would always be busy and I'd always be able to provide. That's the first thing in chapter one of his own memoir. I feel like you can't discount the degree to which that idea of wanting to, of just having to look out for yourself and for your immediate family unit and feeling a responsibility for that, how much that motivated him. And yeah, so when it came time where he, you know, other people were saying, I was mistreated, please help, um, Stan didn't really stand up for them. Uh, because it would have involved going against the company line. It would have involved jeopardizing his income stream. It would have involved rocking the boat. And he just didn't like doing that. That was not what he was predisposed to do. Um, and does that mean he was, you know, humanity's greatest villain? Of course not. And he he could be very kind to people. He gave people hugely hands up in the industry. He was a mentor for a lot of folks. Yeah, I, never, you know, I didn't just, get the villain impression at all, really. Well, good because uh, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to convey that. Like so his, I'm glad that's his he, he gets for demonized money. by. There are a lot of comics yeah, fans. Yeah, I can. Who I can see why for people him. who are hardcore fans and have been following this stuff forever under one impression, and then you know, finding out who your real dad is when you're 35. You know, that's probably disturbing. Right. But that's his. It seemed yeah. like his hunger for 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 money and living that lifestyle was was. Um, Family, equal to family and upbringing. Was equal to his his hunger for adoration, you yeah. know? Like, he, yeah. he, he needed to be praised all the time. And so, like, he was very careful, it seemed like, when there was conflict, not to be a jerk about it. Like, there, there were some yeah. passages in your, uh, in your book where you talk about him actually, you, you know, 
going, being the first one forward to give other people credit, but not necessarily in the way that they should have. And exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he would he would praise Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby uh, to high heaven, but only as artists. You know, it was never, these were the people who I would, I mean, later in life, when he was sort of backed into a corner, he started calling them co-creators of the characters. But even then, you know, like in his aforementioned memoir, but also in other places, he would just say, I don't, it wasn't even veiled. He would just say, I call them the co-creators, but I don't think of them as the co-creators. I mean, I think I was the creator. Of yeah, it was very characters. catty between yeah. all these guys. And some of these, some of the creators ended being very bitter at Stan Lee. And, and oh, yeah. we, we should note, we are, we are very short on time, but I should note quickly that if you actually care more about this stuff, Abraham's book is a great resource. There's also a lot of scholarship on this in the Comics Journal. Uh, you yeah. can read the words of Jack Kirby himself, Neil Adams, Steve Ditko. Uh, many of these people did do contemporary interviews where they tell their side of the story as well. Um, and if you really want to go down that rabbit hole, God bless you. Uh, I will say that as a fan of, of both Stan and Jack, I will say Stan and Jack together were better than Stan and Jack apart, unfortunately. And I say that as a, a large Kirby fanboy, which is disappointing. Uh, we have been speaking with Abraham Reisman. He has a book out. It's called True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. It's from Crown. Real quickly, Abraham, this just came out, and I hate to put you on the spot, but what's next for you? Oh, well, I'm writing another book. I, I have a book contract with uh, Simon & Schuster with their Atria imprint. I'm writing a biography of Vince McMahon, the oh, fair professional oh, wrestling. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 no, that, that one's... That was going to be pretty wild. It'll be a very different kind of biography for a lot of reasons, but there are going to be clear thematic overlaps for people who know anything about Vince. I think you'll, you won't be surprised to, to, or know anything about Vince and Stan. You will see that there are overlaps there, but it, it's, it promises to be a pretty wild ride. It's a pretty eventful life that Vince has had. Well, please come back when that one comes out. We'd love to have you back I on be to happy talk about to. Vince McMahon. Yeah, we'd love to. Uh, another Connecticut boy as well. So you've been listening yes. to I-94. Uh, again, we've been speaking with Abraham Reisman. He is the author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stanley. It's out now from Crown. It is available everywhere, I guarantee you, including at good bookstores and good libraries. Abraham, thanks so much for spending time with thanks us today. We Thanks, really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was delightful. We'll be back next week with another episode of I-94. Marvel Productions was an evolved version of DePatie Freinling. The titular David DePatie, still in leadership role as executive producer, was supremely doubtful of the world's appetite for Marvel content and regularly clashed with Stan over the entity's direction. As a result, the vast majority of Marvel Productions' output in the 1980s was, oddly enough, totally unrelated to Marvel's characters. Muppet Babies, G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, The Transformers, My Little Pony and Friends, these superhero-free series were their biggest hits over the course of the decade. However, at the outset, they gave Marvel's intellectual property a firm try with the launch of three superhero series, Spider-Man, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and The Incredible Hulk. Hulk was never much of a success, lasting only one season. The first two were eventually merged and largely just known to history collectively as Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. There was interest in Amazing Friends at NBC, but Stan found resistance from the network and within his own team when it came to the development of the project. NBC bought the show, which was great, but they didn't understand the essence of Spider-Man, who was a loner, and they made him have Amazing Friends, recalls television executive Margaret Loesch, who had befriended Stan during his periodic trips to LA in the 70s. The prevailing attitude in Hollywood was that comics wouldn't translate well to the screen. They're too serious, too verbose, too ponderous, too heavy, etc. 
In order to lighten up Spidey's adventures, NBC ordered Marvel to grant him two pals, the X-Men known as Iceman and a new female character, created specifically to make the show palatable for girls, named Firestar. Stan was frustrated by the network interference at the time, but he should have been at least slightly grateful for the way things played out, as the show allowed him to make a major and consequential leap into a new role, on-air talent. The idea to have Stan act as narrator for Amazing Friends originated with NBC exec Sam Ewing, who hadn't grown up reading comics and therefore had no youthful reverence for Stan, but who had been impressed by the man's charisma and pitch in development meetings. We were doing the casting for the narrator for the show, and I said, why don't we use Stan Lee? I mean, it's his characters, it's his comic books, let's use Stan Lee, Ewing recalls. DePattier went absolutely ballistic. He thought that this was the worst idea he ever heard. He's got a New York accent, nobody can understand him, yada yada yada. Eventually, Ewing overcame DePattier's objections and Stan was cast in the role, providing the verbal framing for Peter Parker's escapades in his own voice, which was evolving from the solemn tone he'd historically exhibited in public to the street hawker cadences he would soon be famous for. His narration sequences would typically conclude with a cry of Excelsior, further cementing the word as his verbal signature. Stan was closely involved in the writing of the first season, after which he dropped off to work other initiatives, but the narration continued and was a coup for Stan's personal brand. Countless youngsters of the 1980s would first become familiar with him thanks to his auditory role in Amazing Friends and the subsequent narrations and introductions he would perform on other cartoons. It's a direct line from there to his world-famous cameos. Something notable had begun in his life. At the time, however, Stan seems to have felt only consternation towards the TV industry. By the time of a convention appearance in July 1984, he was publicly denigrating his company's own televised projects. Those of you who were careless enough to tune into Spider-Man may have seen that he's there with Iceman and with a girl named Firestar as a team of three people, he told a chuckling crowd. I'll give you a little apology about that too. The way that it's run in network television, it's like when I was a consultant on a live action series. You could go to a network and say, hey, we want to do this show, will you buy it? And the network says, okay, we'll buy it, but that doesn't mean they'll do it the way you want. In the same speech, he briefly plays Marvel's Productions TV's adaptation of the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game, but generally railed against the cards that the TV industry had dealt him. A fan asked him why there were such big differences between the comics and the show, and he replied, we're not allowed to do it the way we want to. His most cherished goal remained live-action Marvel movies, and he made that clear to his audience. Right around that time, Marvel Productions hit an inflection point with the arrival of Losha's CEO. She and Stan got along like gangbusters, and she helped bring the company to new heights with many of the aforementioned non-superhero shows. However, she saw firsthand how little Stan and his institutions were respected. Sometime in the mid-80s, Stan walked into Losha's office brandishing a video cassette. He says, Maggie, this is our next hit, Losh recalls. He gave her the tape, and a little while later she watched what he'd found, a Japanese show about spandex-clad warriors battling extraterrestrial beings in balletic fight sequences. I went over to his office and I said, Stan, I looked at that video cassette you gave me and it's interesting and kind of neat, but it's all in Japanese, she says. And he said, did it matter? And I said, not exactly, because it was fascinating, all those crazy characters. Stan said, Maggie, we ought to develop it, it'll be a great show. The idea was to incorporate the footage with new English language content as framing devices, and Loesch authorized the creation of a sizzle reel to take all three networks for presentations alongside Stan. One network exec pulled me aside away from Stan's earshot because she didn't want to offend Stan because I'd given Stan all the credit, Loesch remembers. She says, Margaret, how could you show me this? You're the executive producer behind Muppet Babies, an Emmy award-winning show. How could you show me this garbage? 
After that failed pitch, Lotion Stan went to get one of his favorite meals, milkshakes and hamburgers. Stan loved junk food, despite Jones' constant protestations that he should eat healthier. We licked our wounds, and we were really embarrassed because they embarrassed us by the reaction, Loesch says. Stan said, We weren't wrong, Maggie. This is just typical. This is what I've faced my whole life. As it turned out, another producer got his hands on the Japanese show called Super Sentai and developed an American adaptation a number of years later. It was called Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and it was one of the biggest children's hits of the 90s. Speaking of eventual hits that found only rejection at the time, Stan was also big on pitching an Ant-Man TV show. Stan kept saying, He's a man. Who's an ant? An ant. Loesch recalls with a laugh. Despite the fact that the Ant-Man movie would go on to make more than half a billion dollars in 2015, no one was biting in the 80s. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Abraham Reisman, author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, out now from Random House. This episode originally aired on April 8, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.